0: Hi, and welcome to another episode of Queer Not Here, where we're sharing stories of LGBTQ Malaysians who've migrated away from Malaysia. I'm Nez, and this episode I speak to Sufei, a queer bisexual in Vancouver, Canada. Now, I just want to add here that out of all the interviews I've done for this podcast, Sufe's is the only one where I feel like it's really such a shame that you can't see them, because as a dancer and performer, they very much speak with their body and yeah, it's just as interesting watching them speak as it is listening to them speak. Alas, this is a podcast, but you can check out their work at leesufe.com. Hope you enjoy the episode and thanks for listening. Would you like to be anonymous at all? Or are you okay using no, your name? No, that's fine. Okay. Yeah, I'm
1: okay using your name.
0: And your lo- location as well? Yeah. And how do you identify?
1: How do I identify?
0: Yeah. Mm. (laughs) Gender, sexuality, those Uh, kind of things. Pronouns.
1: mm, Pronouns. Are you she, her, they, them pronouns? Mm -hmm. She, her because, well, I was she, her for so long. And then I remember maybe five years or so ago, I was sitting in a circle, you know, where you, everyone shares their pronouns. And I think I said something like, I'm um, so jealous of young people these days who, you know, get to grow up with having all these you know, pronouns. And because I think I would have been they, them for sure when I was growing up. And of course, everyone in the circle said, Well, it's not too late. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of
0: course.
1: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> but also the, the feeling, I think, in that moment was like, I think that was like a really clear feeling in my body. Like, ah, this kind of space, you know, that um, it's just a pleasure of of feeling into that space. was instantaneous. But um, all to say, I don't get offended if I'm she, her. I was talking to someone who um, has a child who... Um, is non-binary but chooses different pronouns on different days and I was like wow that's wonderful right and and the mother was saying and it's really clear it's like I don't even have to ask you know like I I I start to know whether that day this child is a he or a her or a they them and I was like wow that's amazing
0: (laughs) that is amazing we live in the future (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. Anyway, I find that super inspiring, and also it opens up permission for myself to feel and mm. to, you know, all the ways to enact or embody gender. Let's go back to the start. When did you mm.
0: leave Malaysia?
1: I left Malaysia in nineteen
0: eighty five. I mm. went to Paris. What led up to that? What was happening
1: in your life? I'd fallen in love with dance passionately. I was trying to decide between going to Indonesia to study dance or I was going to go to Germany to study theatre. But then this uh, Malaysian dancer who had been living in Paris for many years, Larry Liang, he came back to perform. And I was like gobsmacked and that really just was like, I have to go where he goes. I mean, there were many reasons. One was, yeah, like his beauty, the way he danced. I had never seen anyone dance like that. Maybe there was something about race also to that point. I think I had a very, you know, I had very internalized Um, anti-Chinese you know Mm. racism Mm. but I think when I saw him dance I'm like oh my god (laughs) Chinese people can also be cultured (laughs) (laughs) and also uh, you know he he seemed to do um, at that time I thought he did uh, martial arts and suddenly a way for me to access I think embrace or, or not be so ashamed of um, being Chinese, opened up Mm. to me through the body. So that that was one piece of it. But I think the other piece was just, his androgyny was really beautiful to me. Mm. Um, Yeah, I, I wanted to be close to that vibration. And then I went to a party at the French consulate's house. And I went up to Larry and I said, I'm gonna come to Paris. Studying with you, (laughs) and it worked. He said, "Great!" Yeah, he said, "Great!" Call me when you get there. (laughs) So, when you
0: left at that time, did you know you were coming back?
1: Hmm. No, I didn't know. Hmm. I think I carried with me for a long time the desire to to come back and to be part of. Malaysia but then there was also a fantasy of going up there and you know be an artist in Paris say I didn't end up living stay in Paris I, I lived in Paris for a couple of years um, and then I, I came to Canada but I kept my Malaysian passport for 12 years after arriving in Canada I couldn't bear the thought of um, not having it when did you get to Canada oh um, in 1988 oh wow it's been a while so i only gave up my malaysian passport when i had my child and i um yeah i i just had visions of us lining up you know at the border and not being in the same line and that just terrified me so (laughs) i wanted the same passport as my son (laughs)
0: How did it feel giving up your Malaysian passport?
1: I think the act itself, I mean, it had taken so long. When I finally did it, it felt more like a landing in Canada. Like I had stopped myself from arriving here, I think all those years, Mm. which meant I always felt uh, like I couldn't fully participate politically or yeah, there was always a barrier. It, it, that was self-imposed, really. It's like, mm. oh, I, I, I can't talk about these things with the same right because I can't vote. I can't mm. bitch about the government. I can't, <laughs> you know, do this, certain and both. You know, all those things. Like, so. so I think when I finally uh, got my Canadian citizenship, it kicked into, like, the citizenship thing. How queer were you back home before you left? Mm, That's a very good question. I don't think I I identified as queer. Feeling into my queerness happened very late. In Malaysia, I think I was hanging out with queer people. You know, um, my friends were queer. Friends I did children's theater with. You know, I left Malaysia very soon after I left uh, secondary school. And then uh, there was a year where I came back before I I went proper to Canada. And I think in that year, there was the, you know, you leave school and then you develop like a circle of friends Mm. that you kind of grow up into. And maybe that year was the year that, that happened for me. And then I think my circle was very queer then. But, but then, then I moved to Canada, you know, because I had gotten married like the year before to a Canadian straight guy. And I think I just was the project then was just to survive, you know, as an immigrant, um, mm-hmm. to make a life there and <laughs> not fail or something. But I read as very queer. <laughs> 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 so I, I I think then once i I was in Vancouver I, yeah i I felt like I was seen as the the new lesbian in town. <laughs> but I don't think I was really in a place to explore my sexuality.
0: Were you surprised that everyone was clocking you as a lesbian?
1: No really mm-hmm. I mean, the word queer didn't exist, but I knew I wasn't lesbian. And I think maybe that's the thing. I, I didn't have a way to be bisexual. I, I didn't know what bisexual meant. I mean, in mm. my mind, bi- in, in my mind being bisexual meant you like people equally. <laughs> you know, like, it <laughs> like 50-50%. That's right. I thought. <laughs> and I was like, no. <laughs> so, so, so all the... And plus, you know, um, there aren't that many examples of like, you know, that, that this still continues to be bisexual erasure. Yeah. So, so there aren't just there, there, there aren't many expressions of it. So yeah, I, I don't think I I had time or space to really explore. And then I was of course super in love with my partner at that time and. And then we were focused on making a life together. I think my my queerness did, or my feeling into my queerness happened when I discovered kink. Mm. Like formal kink, meaning, you know, like the, the the language of kink, like the, the tools of kink actually allowed me to to explore my sexuality, and it gave me tools to feel, to articulate what desire was for me, my boundaries, you know, things like this. I think the story here is that I had a really colonized body. Mm. Well, I was in this constant fight of, um, Feeling this sexualized Asian, the white gaze, the white mm. male gaze on my body. You know, when mm. I went to France, I had long black hair, um, and just this sudden awareness that oh, I, I there's this stereotype that is really powerful. Mm. I was in a constant struggle sometimes using it to get ahead, sometimes fighting against it. But, you know, in in the midst of it, it was really hard to tell what I was. I think what I did was I I performed, if I was queer, if if I had had that word, then queerness was maybe a gender performance or something to remove myself from with my sexuality in some ways. So that it wasn't so, couldn't be predated upon. I think maybe that's why I read Butch when I arrived in Canada. I was very armored.
0: Right. And how was your relationship with, like, folks back home? Family and things like that? Did it change after you left?
1: Relationship with family is always changing, you know? Like, it's dynamic.
0: But I mean, like... Was it a struggle for them that you
1: left? Mm. I never asked. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was running away from my family.
0: Was there a specific point where you decided, I'm not going
1: home? Oh, like to move back? Nothing. Mm. 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 I don't know if there was a specific point. I suppose once... I had my Canadian citizenship and gave up my Malaysian passport. Like that was really clear. But, you know, there were all the flights leaving, you know, when I came back to Malaysia to visit, you know, those first 10, 12 years, they were long visits, like, you know, a couple of months. But every time I left Malaysia, my memories I would spend the 18 hours flying back just in
0: tears (laughs) (laughs) so it, what I'm trying to so it sounds like your your queer journey was quite a it was quite a journey
1: (laughs) yeah I'm like new queer I'm like an old new queer (laughs) let's put it this way maybe all I can say about the being queer you know when I didn't have the word for it was I couldn't like the heteronormative thing
0: just did not fit. Mm. And when did that kind of start to change?
1: Oh the, well I never fit the mm. heteronormative role. I mean
0: like when did you kind of start to consider queerness for yourself?
1: I would say when, I think I've been kinky for a couple of years. It was through kink playing with, just the idea of play, and then having access to language around consent and negotiation. And then because I'm like a super nerd, I would attend conferences and workshops and like constantly. I was like, just like, oh my God, there are ways to make me not feel so worried you know like when Mm. i'm having sex or when i want to have intimacy with someone and oh my god it's possible to have intimacy with someone and not have sex and Mm. you know just um like that space suddenly became available to me it and it hadn't really before you know and and i guess i was in a monogamy, You know, I'd come to Canada and I was with my partner, then husband, and we were, even though, you know, in, in many ways we weren't monogamous, we, in practice, we were pretty monogamous. and I, I, I hadn't encountered polyamory or those tools yet, so I had no idea, you know, um, it was much easier to be monogamous. And, and so, you know, he was straight. So there's no room within that to play. And I think whenever I thought about being with women, uh, I didn't know how to do it safely. Mm. I, I didn't want to be toying with someone. I think what stopped me in exploring was I didn't know how to navigate it ethically. Right. And it was only when I discovered kink and sort of the tools of negotiation and that really opened up um, like so much more nuance and it was in in constructing kinky play with you know people across the gender spectrum that i then could feel into my queerness how did you discover
0: kink initially
1: uh, because I started going out with my partner, who's also straight guy, uh, maybe a little queer, but, um, <laughs> 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 but we were interested in you know exploring our sexuality with other people and that led us to um, fat life this fetish website like Facebook for kinksters and then workshops and play parties yeah I think having those uh, tools and community actually that was um, sex positive Mm -hmm. and also there's a kind of performativity you know in those kink arenas that somehow made it also safe, or heightened things in some way. So that that was kind of when I went, oh, <laughs> right. <laughs> For example, that like, like uh, you know, I I've always watched um, like DS porn. What porn? Uh, dominant submission. Oh right. Submission mm-hmm. porn. And I think for the longest time, before I felt into my queerness, I would look at the point porn, and this is, I think, an example of like a socialized body, right? Mm. I would watch the porn and, you know, there's a woman, usually the woman is the submissive, you know, in this heterosexual porn scenarios. Um, And then I would just assume that, you know, when I play out the, the scene in my head and, you know, masturbated to or whatever, I would then just assume that I was in that position, right? Mm. That I was the submissive. And you just reenact what you see, or, you know, and, and you take on those roles. Mm. Once I discovered kink and discovered all the ways of being, and I started to explore you know, being dominant, suddenly I realized, oh, all those years I watched kinky porn, where there was dominance and submission, and the woman was submissive. And I thought I was submissive because I identified as a woman. And of course, you know, there's so many images of Asian women being submissive. Mm. But when I started sort of exploring being dominant, Actually, I suddenly realized, oh, no, I actually like looking at the woman. <laughs> 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 I, <laughs> it, it's that, um, <laughs> it's that gaze that actually is the big turn on for me. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's so interesting how powerful those images are on Mm. ourselves. You know, maybe that's the thing is, you know, and I'm also a performer and I'm a dancer and so you're always in this conflicting relationship with your sensations. Mm. Because on the one hand, as, as a dancer, you're invested and you've spent a lifetime developing this this technology of uh, feeling into, you know, all, all these sensations. But you're also, a, you've also been trained to want the approval of the audience, of the teacher. And so you, you're trained constantly to give up your agency and to give up a kind of autonomy. And then at some point, that gaze, is, you, you create a kind of hardness around that. Like you, you perform a certain thing. Yeah. I think the word, in, you know, when you're a person of color, in the word in the 80s and 90s was actually a visible minority. So the idea of the gaze on your body is constant. Mm. I think that was so much a part of it. Uh, I was consciously grappling with that in my work as a choreographer. Mm -hmm. It's like, it still is. It's how do I gain agency over my body when I have, I've been racialized. Like my, I'm, even in Malaysia, you know, you're you're red all the time Mm -hmm. And, and people are making decisions about who you are based on, you know, the color of your skin and how you code. Yeah.
0: I mean as, as someone who's quite ambiguous, it makes people uncomfortable that they can't figure me out.
1: Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. 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 And how does that make you feel?
0: Uh it depends. Sometimes I like it. Sometimes I don't give in and make them figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it's it's a safety issue also, right? With my queerness, so sometimes I definitely do use that white privilege card because I'm I am so visibly queer.
1: Mm. Tell me about the white privilege card. Where where you where it's safer to? Um,
0: well, if I go to like the beach, for example. Like last year, we went to Perintian, which is in um, Trangganu, right? Which is a PAS state. Mm-hmm. Side note. PAS, or Parti Islam's Malaysia, is the Islamic party in Malaysia who have been around since pre-independence days. They are extremely right-wing, and as a recent example, they actually congratulated the Taliban for retaking control of Afghanistan. As I mentioned in a side note in the first episode, after the 2018 general elections, they decided to publicly cane two women for attempt of musahaka, or lesbian acts. And you know, I'm gonna be in the beach in like my bikini and all that. So in those spaces, yeah, I don't really want to be seen as Malay. But at the same time, like, it it pisses me off. (laughs) You know, like when when people talk to me like I'm a tourist, then yeah. So it's a constant kind of conflict.
1: I know it's it's a very complex thing.
0: Mm, It is.
1: You know how yeah you're like Malay, Chinese, Indian, or line line. I go away, I come back one year, and I buy a cell phone. I have my son with me now. He's little. And the guy who's filling out the form puts line, line. And I was like, whoa, what happened? Like, I used to be China, and now suddenly I'm line, <laughs> line. Because... <laughs> but you know, it's because it's, my son is like Chong and you know, I'm with a white guy, and suddenly I code different or something. It's mm-hmm. so strange. Mm-hmm. I got pissed off being like nine. I was
0: like... <laughs> <laughs> right? Suddenly, you want to reclaim that box again. <laughs> I know. <Yeah. laughs> when you moved there, did you have Malaysian friends? Or was that something you sought out at all?
1: Uh, no, there isn't. I haven't found... It's not like like I'm jealous of my friends who say went to London, you know, like there's like a Malaysian community there. I think people from Malaysia here who, especially if they're Chinese, they just get absorbed into the larger Chinese diaspora. Now I start to find um, more Malaysians and Singaporeans.
0: But is that something you wanted? needed?
1: I'm not sure. Well, let's put it this way. It wouldn't be necessarily like meeting another Malaysian who wasn't my people didn't feel that helpful. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. And like, did it make you like anxious at all meeting Malaysians who weren't your people? Yeah. How so?
1: I think that was the thing, like, if I met Malaysians who were my people, um, it made me feel even lonelier or something. But, you know, so much of my growing up in Malaysia was me feeling like I didn't have my people. Mm. Like, just being ill-fitting Queer, (laughs) (laughs) because because when I met you, when I came back that year and taught that workshop, and in that very queer room, I was like, what excited me was, oh my god, if I had stayed in Malaysia, would I have found my people here, Mm. like the people in this room? So. Would I have found my queerness sooner? Mm. Is the question I have, actually. Because, you know, in the West, like in this white society, queerness, most queer spaces, like cute spaces too, are very white. Mm. And I think it's only now I'm like 57. I'll be 57 years old. Yeah, now I have like the tools you know to feel into myself to speak speak up for myself to be able to negotiate you know to fight for for things yeah i can construct safe spaces for me now Hmm. when i was younger not so much so you you know you just keep those things unspoken or unsaid and then if you don't speak of them you don't feel into them you don't get to really explore.
0: What made you want to do that workshop that you did when you came back here?
1: I don't know. I just wanted to teach. I, I You know, I, I want to connect with Malaysia constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think up to that point, I'd mostly connected through uh, Five Art Centre, through this kind of art my arts family mm. and and it was through them of course that I met Pam. but then I think Pam opened up a world of people and oh I'm so curious <laughs> <laughs>
0: and how yeah. did that feel kind of finding your Malaysian peoples, I guess.
1: It was super moving. Like for me, teaching that workshop was super moving. <laughs>
0: do you keep, do you, like, how much do you engage with what's what's happening back home there?
1: I, uh, I follow through Facebook. Mm. Sometimes it's overwhelming because I just don't know what to do. But it just seems like, you know, if, if, I, if I engage too much, it it's becomes overwhelming and, and I, I, I there's not much action for me. But a couple of months ago, I did some work for the organization Innovations for Change. Mm-hmm. And, and through that, got to meet a whole bunch of other queer people. And you know all over Southeast Asia so that felt super exciting
0: mm. so how have you seen like um, the queer community change here like over time because I mean like before you left you I mean just the art spaces are super queer right but mm-hmm. I'm sure that queerness has also changed over time
1: I suppose like the internet has really been a big connector, but also like the language, you know. I'm sure it's the same change that has happened here too, hmm. where now, you know, that there's more and more understanding of the nuances of the LGBTQIA2S. Um, those things like that <laughs> just all the ways mm. and, and every time we learn about you know a new sort of rainbow spectrum it also opens up that possibility in oneself mm. so that's exciting I don't feel like I'm able to kind of answer your question with any authority because it's not like I was paying attention to the queer community, you know, in the past and mm. the queer community now. I mean, I think my, my experience is more my own journey and then kind of meeting a, a new queer community maybe than the one I knew. Like, honestly, I, I didn't grow up in a family that, where people made, you know, geography comments about gay people. I just remember hanging out with also friends or where there was just this very easy fluidity. Yeah, it didn't feel oppressive. But that's not to say that's true, you know, it just it's like my own personal experience of it. Yeah, and and it could be also because I was, you know, in a kind of rarefied middle class, upper middle class kind of um, community, right? And people are protected from the violence and the oppression
0: mm. by
1: their social status somehow. Also.
0: Yeah, I mean, it sounds about right. I mean, just the fact that, like, it wasn't oppressive <laughs> is a change. You know, because mm-hmm. it very much now is it now. feels yeah.
1: definitely, yeah, definitely now there's a. But that seems also, it's almost like the more um, freedoms that have been won, the more there's, a, you know, there is this fear, of this old mm. guard, and this, you know, far right, super conservative holding on
0: yeah that's what I try to remind myself all the time it's like we're making progress we're more vocal we're more visible that's why they're pushing back so
1: hard I, th- I think the fluid space that being queer allows for you know where identities are not fixed and known—just mm. kind of emergent the queerness of that space um, is ultimately very threatening to fixed, you know, the fixedness of patriarchy and the fixedness of heteronormativity.
0: Mm-hmm. And especially like with the the younger queers, it's it's already so younger queers of you know a certain demographic and background it's so normalized for them already you know their identities are so intersectional and queer and fluid and all these things and their activism is too so yeah they give me a lot of hope Mm
1: yeah me too and give me a lot of um space to learn about myself Mm -hmm. yeah I, i mean language is so important because I, I, yeah, like before the word queer came around or intersectionality, it was just so hard to to piece together, you know. It's like, yes, I'm a feminist, but how come this feminist, this white feminist rhetoric is not somehow landing on me and I, I feel so left out of it.
0: And, right.
1: And then if I stand by, you know, by this white woman, why do I feel kind of icky like the rest, you know, the other parts of me? So, it's only been in the last, you know, 10, 15 years or so that we've developed language to like really Mm -hmm. be able to make sense of these conflicting, you know, these feelings. Yeah. Understanding the political sort of forces on our bodies. Mm -hmm. a lot of weight.
0: Yeah. And I think one of the issues at the moment is that all this language is not localized, right? It's not accessible in our languages, which then creates even more of a divide between English-speaking Malaysians and non-English-speaking Malaysians.
1: And then how do you, you know, because that language also comes from North America, let's speak. Mm-hmm. Honest, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's US American and it comes with certain assumptions and you know it comes from a certain sociopolitical political kind of reality and some of it plays out, yes in Malaysia but there are all these other power dynamics and
0: for sure for race sure.
1: dynamics and stuff and family and social dynamics that are different.
0: Yeah, cultural dynamics. Yeah, it's very yeah. different. But I also do feel like folks are trying to reclaim those languages and decolonize the language as well. And, you know, like there's conversations about using dia instead of they, them. Mm-hmm. Because
1: mm-hmm. it's already in English. our
0: language, right? Yeah, yeah. it's already in our
1: language. It's <laughs> yeah. not binary. hmm I mean, that's Um, I'm always bragging to people here, I'm like, you know, in Asian languages, (laughs) the third person is already like (laughs) non-gendered. I was so disappointed then to discover, you know, because spoken Chinese, Ta or e, you know, it's non-gendered, but I didn't realize because of course, I, I don't really read or write Chinese, but recently I was Kind of relearning you know my Mandarin terrible but you know I, I started to learn mandarin again with duolingo and and you know going through the writing and mm. then it was only then so it was only like two years ago that i learned that oh the written um third person uh in chinese is still gendered oh right when you write it but when you speak it it's not mm. and i was so disappointed
0: that's interesting. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Although someone, uh, you know, I, I follow some Asian queers on Twitter, and uh, someone, uh, there was a tweet that said, you know, one of the older uh, written versions of the third person pronoun is non binary. And so the, this gendered version is relatively new. Yeah,
0: yeah. I was just seeing some folks have this conversation on Facebook the other day. Actually, trying to figure out like mm. the characters and how they were originally and how they became gendered, and then trying to ungender them again.
1: Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. So that there is this movement to like go back to the ungendered, mm-hmm.
0: which is awesome. That is so cool. It is. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. But dia is a much better word than they then.
0: Yeah, (laughs) India is great. It's
1: kind of impossible to be non-binary in French, no?
0: Yeah, I know. It's like the most gendered language ever. (laughs) Oh Oh, yeah, I wanted to ask you, how do you feel about pride?
1: How do I feel about pride? Mm. Okay, I have to confess, I have never been to a single pride. I'm, I'm like a baby queer enough that I'm constantly having imposter syndrome. So before I identified as queer when, you know, I, I just identified as straight, I didn't go to pride parades and stuff because I just felt it's kind of rude to like stare at people. Like you know. <laughs> 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 and Maybe, you know, like it's, it's, it's not my, yeah, it, this kind of, it just felt like a ceremony there and it's not for me to kind of be a gawker. And then now that I identify as queer, I don't know, there I think there's this kind of queer, like the, the performance of queer also mm. Makes me feel a little uncomfortable. Mm. I was actually the poster person for the queer arts festival some years ago. I would say maybe that was my uh, coming out. I was, <laughs> I was just on the poster. How
0: was that? That's a pretty public coming out.
1: It actually was a, kind of terrifying. Um, because the Queer Arts Festival here had been asking me for a while um, if I wanted to show work, and I was like, I don't know if I should show work, you know. I feel queer, but I don't know if I should take space. Mm.
0: You yeah, know, I have
1: access to other spaces. I was unsure. But they convinced me to do this piece, and I, I was... They convinced me that it was important for, you know, it wasn't about me taking space, but it was important for all kinds of queer people to be represented and for people to realize who the queer artists were. And I was like, okay, okay. <laughs> but at that time, I had also had an affair with this person, um, a queer person. It had ended, and in this conversation with this person, I had... Admitted basically what I admit to you now is, you know, this imposter syndrome and this fear that I'm not queer enough, you know, th- this. Anyway, when I when it ended, this person got angry at me and, and accused me of of lying, of saying I I was queer when I wasn't queer. Like it basically accused me of the thing I said I was afraid of.
0: <laughs> oh jeez, that's terrible.
1: I know. <laughs> And then I was on the poster on the queer
0: festival—literal <laughs> queer poster child.
1: <laughs> I know, imposter, imposter, imposter. <laughs> then this person had like a temper tantrum on Facebook, and kind of uh, yeah, it was very terrifying to me. And I was calling the festival people and saying, I don't know, maybe I should pull, pull out. I'm feeling <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I can handle this.
0: But it went okay?
1: Yeah, it went totally fine. And and, and the piece was really great. You know, I, I did this piece where I um I, I basically make a ritual outside that ended with, uh, uh, it's kind of like an, a, a throw Taoist ritual objects, you know, like joss sticks and incense, and spirit paper and all those things. And then, and mm. then we, we make a fire at the end. And you know, it's an acknowledgement of um, the indigenous people here. Too. It's just like a land acknowledgement. And, and, and then at the end, people come and they're burning stuff. And so I'm inviting people to take a moment with their ancestors and with the ancestors of the of the indigenous people here. But um, to do it, like in a Queer Arts Festival, and then what was really lovely was then to meet, like through that process to have the Asian queers here, you know, like the the Chinese queers who were used to burning spirit paper, but in the privacy of the home, suddenly in public and being able to share it with sort of larger community, well, you know, queer community and, and being able to share that sort of ritual practice and being able to show their white friends or non-Chinese friends how to do it was super healing for them. And that, that was all like a big surprise for me that it would be that there was another level of um, connection that the piece made from for me to like to somehow that ceremony, you know, made me connect into a different community here too.
0: Mm. How much does like your Malaysianness come out in your work?
1: I think my malaysian comes out in um, how sensitive I am to power structures and colonialism and and how our bodies are so affected by it. I think Zedek once tweeted that, you know, if you're a Southeast Asian artist, like, you can't help, but your work is about colonialism. Like, how can it not be? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. it, it just permeates everything. And so I'm, I'm like, hyper-tuned to that and hyper to how power sits on our body and how it affects everything. You know, our, our sexuality, our gender, our taste buds, our desire.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you have to leave to kind of be able to see that? Or were you already aware of that when you were here?
1: I think I was aware of it, but then... You know, you only then have... I mean, my teachers were people like Janet Pillay and Andy Cruz and Christian Jit. So they were already in the question of what it means to be, to have autonomy, you know. to, mm-hmm. to They were already grappling with colonialism. So I, I carried that, those questions with me. But then I ended up living in a white society. And that you know, added a, another layer of, uh, it means I'm just constantly under the gaze of that, and mm. battling that too. Mm. But I don't know yeah. if my Malaysianess comes out um, like in, in recognizable. you know, first of oh. all, for most people here, Malaysia is such an abstract thing. no one knows what it is.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> like, I still get like, close friends, people, you know, who've known me for many, many years will go, oh, you're Chinese? I thought you were Malaysian. I mean, I'm both, I'm both.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's so hard to, like, explain to non-Malaysians, right? Or even, I find a lot of times if I'm, like, in a group of Malaysians and there's, like, a non-Malaysian, they usually assume to call us all Malay because we're Malaysians. Mm. And then mm-hmm. the non-Malays will be like, no, I'm not Malay. I am Malaysian, but I'm not Malay. I'm, <laughs> you know, and yeah, it becomes yeah, this yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> which just generally just leaves people confused. Yeah. Yeah. But um, how, how big would you say your Malaysian identity is a part of you there?
1: Oh, like um, how other people read me?
0: Or how you identify yourself.
1: Oh, oh, it's big. I, I. I feel, very, uh, I feel very Malaysian. I feel the choices I make are always because I'm Malaysian. Yeah. Like my concerns, the way I, I kind of notice when I do meet with like-minded Malaysians, there's a certain, yeah, it's the kind of the way we're politicized, I suppose. That feels very Malaysian to me. It just, attunement to to the political to our political body to the to the body as as a politicized field.
0: Do you think you'll ever move back home? Move? I would
1: love to be yeah. able to do that. Yeah, it's it's a dream. It's an ache. <laughs> but it feels so far away, so so far right now, I think the, it feels so unkind there right now, and I don't, not having lived there, you know, and my visits have been shorter and shorter, I, I don't have the tools, you know, like the daily tools of living there to, But before COVID hit, I had made an internal orientation, I suppose. You know, living in Vancouver, one feels very far away from everything. There's the mountains that cut you off from the East Coast and Europe. And then there's the Pacific that (laughs) cuts you off from Asia. But because of uh, the, the, you know, being a dancer and And just how the industry is set up, everybody looks towards the East Coast and Europe, you know, that's where all the networking and the, the business happens. And so I would say, yes, I invested in that direction for a long time, but I was starting to feel uninterested in those conversations that were driven by this kind of Eurocentric view. So I had sort of decided in myself, oh, I'm gonna turn towards Asia, I'm gonna... I think the, the workshop that I came back to teach was a, a pivotal moment for me. Um, I think before my, my connection to Malaysia was, either through with my family, or with Five Art Center. Mm. And I think meeting and teaching that workshop, suddenly like my Malaysian world opened up a little more mm. and and then uh, you know I, I could feel like yeah, more space for me to breathe. And so I, I wanted to explore that more. And so I was wanting to come back and do stuff or, you know, attend conferences in Korea and stuff like that.
0: Oh, that's nice to hear. Come back and do more things. <laughs> I would love to. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. last cu- last couple of questions. What do you What do you wish for the Malaysian LGBT community?
1: I wish for safety. Yeah, because you can't really you need to be safe to feel into yourself and to feel that you can be in touch with yourself and know yourself okay cool do you, kind of,
0: <laughs> do you have anything else you want to add that maybe i didn't touch on
1: no i, I do i'm i'm sitting here feeling i continue to have imposter syndrome it's like <laughs> is this is actually like is this useful to you of? like this? Yeah. Is this no, it's into your into your inquiry. Like,
0: it, it's been a really interesting conversation, no, for real. I
1: I think I read your you know when you gave me this proposal I or, or, you know you asked me into this conversation my first impulse was oh it is the story that there's more freedom to discover my queerness outside of Malaysia. You know, is is that the narrative? Because I I don't know if that's my narrative. Mm. In fact, it feels like being, you know, bisexual and then coming, you know, my particular sort of combination of um, circumstances meant that when I came here, I I kind of obediently performed a kind of heteronormativity mm. for a long time um, and it wasn't because it wasn't safe for me to or I, I didn't have space to explore my queerness and I I'm, maybe I you know maybe I might have found that in relation
0: yeah Who knows? I mean I don't I don't really have an agenda that's what's so great about this is like everyone's story is different and how they right. get there is different. But yeah, do you do you feel safe though as a queer person there, as a queer person of color?
1: Yes, I do. I think I found community. Hmm. But you know, there there is there is a kind of um, gatekeeping that happens in queer spaces. Mm-hmm. And, and because yeah and so sometimes that feels that makes me i don't know if lack of safety is the right word it's more uh, i'm not sure i need to engage with it like i'm kind of an introvert so i actually don't feel the need to go and you know I, I don't need to go to queer parties and stuff like this mm let's say queer spaces make me feel safer than Mm. hetero straight spaces (laughs) (laughs) like you know when, when I go to kink parties and and it's like queer night or it's like a or a queer BIPOC space like that space feels super safe in a way that um and and I wouldn't have been able to even articulate that the white kinky space or queer kinky space hadn't been safe until I went to a queer BIPOC space, you know? Yeah. Because the, the feeling is so different. And you like, oh. Okay, last
0: one. Um, mm. What sounds remind you of home? Crickets. Chicha. You got chicha there? <laughs>
1: no. No chicha. I don't know. The sound of, like, you know, when you're in a housing estate and, and there's like the bread man or
0: <laughs> yep.
1: vendors, you know, with the horns honking. On, like, tar- <laughs> on, on Bells, yeah. Well, thank, oh, you, so thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah, that, that's been lovely. Yay!
0: <laughs> you okay?
1: Take very good care of yourself.
0: And... Uh, thank you. You too. <laughs> you too.
1: Thanks. Was well, nice to hang out with you.
0: You too. Have a great week.
1: You too. Bye.
0: Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Queer Not Here. If you'd like to give me feedback or are curious about anything discussed in this episode do write to me at queernothere at gmail.com or hit me up on Instagram at queer.nothere. Thanks for listening!